This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Ask to try and merge this morning in our time together, and that is place a capstone on, on our Mission Emphasis Week as we conclude it, and then report a little bit, share with you a little bit from the mission field, at least from some of the places that I've been and, and spoken to uh, recently, and then, of course, preaching to, to edify you, preaching the Word. So we'll try and bring all these th- things together. And to do that, I want to read this morning from both of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, uh, two passages that have a similar thread or a similar theme. And so the first one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The second one will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So this first one's found on page 952 if you care to use the Black Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read verse 18 and then jump down to verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord now a similar thread but somewhat different in second corinthians second corinthians chapter 7 verses 7 to 10 a well-known statement there in verse 9 so to keep me from becoming conceited Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. I pray he would bless the reading and hearing of it to your heart. Thank you. Let's sit down and take a look. This won't be a this won't be a detailed formal exposition of both of those passages, but I need to share some things with you and I'll try and pull out a couple of the main points. Uh, you know, it's been kind of a whirlwind tour for me. Uh, last 10 days uh, up until a day or two ago, I've been filled with a variety of different ministry experiences and different uh, people whom I've spent time with in different parts of the world, different contexts, uh, somewhat of a collage, a collage of contrasts of different places, different things. Um, and it all began with a, a week ago Wednesday, not this past Wednesday, but the week before that, I, I finished teaching there a master's level class at the, at the seminary in Vallejo. And then next morning I got on a flight to Costa Rica arrived late that Thursday evening, and then the following days I was uh, teaching uh, an intensive module 
uh, on basic Bible interpretation, an introduction to Bible interpretation. It's just, you know, hours after hours. And uh, we were at the facility of a church uh, in a town called Palomares, and incidentally, my th- third cousin is here visiting with us today. I should have mentioned that. There she is, everybody, uh, from Costa Rica. That's what I'm pointing it out. And the church set up there to take care of us, and uh, uh, we, set, we slept on these rear seats of a van that fall down, and were taken out of vans, and we were placed in a building that wasn't conditioned very much, and Fernando was there. I met him there, and uh, we spent both the na- most of the night competing to see who could kill most of the flying si- insects and, and, and things that were crawling upon us. Um, and then the intense, uh, this, that's for real, okay, that's for real. Then the, on Saturday, the intensive began, and, and at the end of that day on Saturday, we drove four hours straight uh, up to the Pacific coast to the town of Liberia, where uh, Edier Urbina is church planting in there, and I had to preach the next, uh, the next morning, so I was pretty exhausted, and the only hotel they could find and set me up with was this uh, motel in the middle of the town. And I don't, we don't normally go there. And, and on, that, on that weekend, the town was in this great fiesta, this massive fiesta of, uh, you know, with uh, beautiful stuff like the horses and the traditional dances and things, but also the not-so-traditional public drunkenness and uh, loud pounding music all night long. So... It was quite a, uh, quite a tour. The next day, we had the church together. It was still sweet to be with everybody. You're exhausted. Then we had a meal, and then it was meetings. And then following Monday was meetings with Fernando and Sylvia, and then meetings with Eddie and his wife, and talking about where things are going. Tuesday, I got on a plane and flew to Houston, from Houston to Southern California, where I attended the, uh, about a day and a half of the Shepherds Conference there uh, at Grace Community Church, the big church where John MacArthur pastors, and I think many of you know about it. I, was, I went to seminary there, and it was a whole different scene there, of course. There were some 4,000 and a half, 4,500 pastors from all over the world. They're all meeting in this massive um, worship center, which I know well. We went to church there with, you know, it's just un- impeccable music and guest musicians, you know. It's like these people playing the Philharmonic and all that, and there's a massive tent outside filled with books. They gave us a free box of books. This happens all the time. They feed you well snacks. They even shine my shoes, believe it or not. I got them on. Uh, all the coffee you would want, all the snacks, all the treats, you know. It was just a totally, a total different experience. And then I slept, I slept, slept very comfortably in, in the well-apportioned hotel Burbank. Now, why am I sharing all this with you? You see the collage there of the different experiences. I'm sharing this with you because were we as believers uh, to view or judge or evaluate the churches uh, by their settings uh, through the lens of the world, through the perspective, through the standards of the world, we might conclude, wrongly so, incorrectly so, that small little churches with little money, with no buildings of their own, uh, that those churches somehow are a failure, that they're nothing compared to something like GCOM, as they refer to it down there, Grace Community Church. And if you were to view the church and analyze it through the lens, that lens, you would be profoundly mistaken. Profoundly mistaken. Because the world, the world outside the true church, the world prizes what appears powerful, what appears strong, what appears um, uh, prestigious and, and important. And small, small seems feeble, useless, weak, insignificant. And this is, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's how the world views the church. But God works in the reverse, right? Verse 26, the weakness of God is, excuse me, this, uh, verse 26 down to 27. I'm bouncing all over the place here, huh? Second half of verse 27. God chose what is weak in the world. That is, what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame uh, the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in, in the presence of God, you see. And so the principle here, the principle, uh, what I'd like you to see, is that God accomplishes His work of salvation through a message, a method, and messengers that appear weak and foolish to the world. God accomplishes His work of salvation uh, through a message, a method, and messengers that appear weak and foolish in the eyes of the world, before the world. The church is normally, I say, uh, by vast standards, the church is filled with people from the world who are hurt, are weak, are broken, are poor, and the eyes of the world are unimpressive, you know. And that was the case at Corinth. So Paul says, look at yourself, verse 26. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. When God called you to faith, he's saying. When God saved you and called you to believe in his son, not many of you, notice some were, but he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world. That's you, he says. Look at yourselves. Not a very um, favorable way to view yourself, (laughs) but it still stands true. Look at yourselves. (laughs) Not many in the church are from wealthy, powerful families and historical noble people and so forth and people of great influence in the culture, the gatekeepers of society's culture and so forth. No, not many. The vast majority of us will be completely forgotten in 100 years. Uh, That's just the way it is. And so he says, look at yourselves. This is how God works. You say, what about the messengers? Well, they're not impressive either. (laughs) They're not impressive either. Well, Jesus chose 12 men, and the vast majority of them were uneducated fishermen. In fact, they were insulted when you read in the book of Acts. Remember, they appeared before the Sanhedrin, the the rulers of Israel, and they said, who are these guys? They're fishermen. They're uneducated men. What do they know? What are they doing here? And the vast majority of God's messengers are those who also came from broken lives and hurts and aren't impressive. But Paul, you say, Paul's different. Well, yes, Paul was different. It says not many, right? And he was one of those who who did have an impressive background, right? The apostle Paul was not one of the 12. Paul was called later. And yes, he was different. He was very educated. Uh, He studied under the great rabbi Gamaliel. He was recognized for his education. He was a Pharisee, a teacher. He had some power, evidently. He had some influence. If you remember in the book of Acts, when they went to kill the first Christian martyr, to stone Stephen, he had a vote. You know, he had some influence in that. He had a he had a seat at the table to decide that. There's some prestige that comes with that. He was among the religious elite people. In fact, he brags later. He says that he he was from Pharisees on both sides, on his mom's side and on his father's side as well. But Paul said this. He had he had to learn. He had to learn that all of that, all of that was of absolutely no advantage to him when it came to his salvation. It contributed nothing to his salvation, to his forgiveness of sins. In fact, that's the truth because God will have no one boast before him. There's no boasting before God. And Paul would later say that all of his achievements, all of his religious achievements amounted to nothing but a pile of dung. His words, not mine. (laughs) You want to hear his words? They're in Philippians chapter 3. Here's how Paul viewed his religious accomplishments, his education, all that he had achieved as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says in Philippians chapter 3, no need to turn there if you don't want, but verse 7, Paul says, whatever gain I had... This is the apostle speaking. Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything 
a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And that word means dung. I count it as nothing but a pile of dung in order that, notice that, in order that I may gain Christ. You can't gain Christ if you think your life and your goodness, your achievements, your religion somehow contributes to your salvation. If you want to gain Christ, everything else must be rubbish, nothing. He goes on to say, I want to be, and to be found in him, found in Christ, to found in him, not having, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not the results of how good I've been and how obedient I've been. No, no, no. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So not, not my righteousness presented to God, but Christ's righteousness given to me from God. How? By faith. And so, yes, Paul was different than the other 12. He was educated. He was he, of noble birth. He, he had some sophistication. He had some power. But Paul says that meant absolutely nothing when it came to knowing Christ Jesus. You see. And so in 1 Corinthians, what, what, I, what I think we have here, I want you to see, is in part, it is a paradigm, uh, a picture of Paul's understanding of how the mission of bringing the gospel to the nations, of seeing people come to faith, how that mission is carried out, uh, not only by him as an apostle, we're not apostles, but we are all carriers of the gospel, beloved. You are all messengers, vessels of the good news that resides in you. And so we learn from Paul, we must learn from Paul as we evaluate the church, as we evaluate the mission. We must learn from what he rejected, which was power and prestige and, and cleverness, and we must learn from what he emphasized, what he, what he pursued. Uh, and, and take that and consider that as part of our, 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 our mode of fulfilling the Great Commission. And so Paul, <clears throat> he, in, verse, in verse 18 of chapter 1, from there on, what he's doing is he's painting this vivid picture of the contrast between human wisdom and God's wisdom. And he says there in verse 18, the word of the cross, that's God's wisdom. The word of the cross is folly. The word is moronic. That's what it sounds like in the Greek, just like in the English. The word of the cross, what's that mean? The message of salvation through what Jesus did on the cross. That message of the cross is moronic. It seems like it's like idiocy. To whom? To those who are perishing to those who are on their way to hell, to eternal condemnation. What else might they think of it? They have to see it as foolishness, otherwise they'd have to admit their need. To them it's stupid. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the very power of God. And Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. People are ashamed of it. People think it's stupid. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first, in historical sequence, but also to all of us, right? To, to Greeks, as it were. And he says that God has made himself unknowable, unreachable through human wisdom. You can't, you can't get enough Harvard PhDs and study enough philosophy to somehow arrive at God and be right with him, be acceptable to him. No, you can't. He's unknowable by human wisdom, but God has made himself knowable. He has made himself knowable and reachable through what? Through a crucified Messiah, a man named Jesus, the Son of God. To the Jews, he says, look down there at... Uh, at verse 23, to the Jews, a stumbling block. That word is scandalon. You hear the English, scandal. <laughs> it's just a scandal. Why is it a scandal 
to say that God saves people through a crucified Messiah? Well, because the Old Testament law of Moses, the law of God, the word of God says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. So uh, the fact that Jesus was crucified, all that proves is that he cannot be the Messiah. (laughs) He absolutely cannot be the Messiah from their perspective, you see. And so for them, it's a scandal to say such things. The Jews demand power, he says, signs. They want to see power, not weakness on a cross. Show us power, show us miracles, and of course, The Lord did perform miracles, and they were blind to it spiritually. The great miracle that was given them was his resurrection on the third day, the sign of Jonah. The Greeks were different. Uh, They they see this idea of a religion based upon a crucified man. Uh, They see that as absolute foolishness, and a difference is they don't desire power. What they desire was uh, the wisdom of human philosophy and human understanding and rationality and so forth. And that looks like a stupid religion. I mean, uh, in the early centuries, the Christianity was mocked by the Greco-Roman culture with the, these drawing and images of Jesus on the cross with a donkey's head, you know. There's your God you're worshiping, you know. Uh, and so to them, it's, it's foolishness. But they will never never be able to receive the wisdom of God, salvation through a man on the cross, unless they stop relying on their own wisdom, their own philosophy, their own insight, and just come to him by faith. And so what did Paul reject that we should reject? He rejected the idea that we should somehow seek power or or at least convey that we're powerful and important uh, so that the world will draw closer to the church and maybe be more interested. He, he, he rejected the idea that maybe we should make our language, the gospel, sound a little more sophisticated, you know, a little more academic and stop talking about hell and judgment and sin and, and blood and crucifixion. <laughs> and resurrection, who's ever seen anyone raised from the dead? You know, just stop avoiding, avoid that stuff, right? Paul says, you have to reject power, and you have to reject human wisdom, and you must remain committed to what? The word of the cross. Foolishness to, to uh, a scandal to Jews, right? And uh, foolishness to, to Greeks. What do we learn from this? Well, first, you must apply it to yourself personally. Before we think about our mission and our missionaries, and first of all, um, this is the only way of salvation for everyone, for you. The only way of salvation is not through religion, it's not through your efforts, not through your goodness, not through your power, not through saying, well, look, I'm much better than all these other people. Look at the news. They're, I can't believe people live like that. You need to leave all that behind you. You see, it's all rubbish. It's all nothing. Not present your righteousness to God, but receive his righteousness by faith. And so make sure you're understanding the gospel correctly. Look at verse 30. And because of him, he's speaking to Christians now, because of God and what God has done, he's called you, you are in Christ Jesus. Picture yourself clothed, surrounded by Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. God's wisdom, God's way of salvation, specifically three things he mentions here. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, we need these three things to be, to be saved, to belong to God, to be part of God's family. We need righteousness, but we can't present our own. We don't have righteousness. We need sanctification. The word means, what, holiness, to be set apart. Uh, we need that, but we, we are not set apart uh, on our own. We need, what, redemption. We need to be, means to be bought, right? Set free from bondage, but all these are impossible for us. But listen to this. What if... What if Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, what if Christ's sanctification, his holiness, 
set apart for the cross for your sins? What if Christ's redemption, the payment paid on that cross, what if all that, his, could become yours? And that's the gospel, you see. That's good news. And it's yours by faith alone. Not faith plus a little more. Not faith plus go to church. Faith alone. Why? He tells us so that no one may boast before God. Salvation is by grace alone. Let no one boast, he says, verse 31. Let the one who boasts, rather, boast in whom? The Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord from beginning to end. Ephesians chapter 2, you know, says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may, what, boast. No boasting. So start there. Make sure you understand the gospel, my friends, and, and that you are trusting only in Christ. And then secondly, remember, all of this is still God's strategy. This is how God is fulfilling his mission in the world through the church. God doesn't need more power. God doesn't need churches to have nicer buildings or better sound systems or better video systems or, or philharmonic orchestras. And if he gives us those things, that fine, those are tools. But God needs none of these things. What God works through is through messengers that seem weak and foolish, a method that seems weak and foolish, just, just talking, preaching. And he calls many. He calls many who to the world seem foolish, weak, useless, powerless. So when we, um, when we evaluate our, our, our churches across the world, the, the other churches, our mission partners, like those in Mexico and Spain and Costa Rica, Honduras, and other parts of the world, South Africa, and Southeast Asia, etc., we don't ask, how big is their church facility? We don't ask, how many are, are there? We don't ask, are there any, anyone there that is wealthy? <laughs> anyone there that was important? Any, anybody there that's really influential in the city government or in the society there? We don't ask any of these questions whatsoever. Uh, we don't evaluate with the lens of the world. We only ask this, are they faithful? It's required of a servant, says Scripture, that he be faithful. Are they faithful to preaching the cross, the message of the cross? Are they faithful? Do they love the Lord? That's what we ask, you see. And so if you were to be able to travel with me and the privilege I have to do so, and that's why I come back to talk to you about it, if you were to travel with me across the world to Spain, Honduras, Costa Rica, different places I get to go, the vast majority of the churches that we partner with and support all across the world are very small. And that most of them do not have their own church facility to meet in. In fact, in this last month, and uh, we announced at our members' meeting that we sent some $32,000 to the Evangelical Church of Sevilla uh, so that they could put a down payment on a uh, storefront property so they could keep meeting because they were being kicked out of where they had been meeting and they needed help. And this is not even one of our regular supported mission fronts, but uh, we have a relationship with them. and They needed help. Why? Because their church is faithful, but they are only 30, 35 strong. That's it. That's it. Some less than 30, 35 members, a few others come. And then in uh, the church I was in in Costa Rica when we were doing the, uh, the, the class there, 22 adults attending the class there, yes, yeah, studying how to interpret the Bible in a small upper room sitting on old grammar school desks. A lot of bad memories coming back for me there, but... Uh, <laughs> they're sitting in the old grammar school desk you know the wood desk and the, a tin roof and no air conditioning and you know in the world's eyes you look at that and you say you're going to change the world with this pitiful how weak there's nothing there but if you were able to sit with me 
in both of those places and other places and seeing with them as they worship the Lord in their native tongue without all this, mostly their voices resonating in these halls, uh, you would have a different impression. And you'd say, God's in this place. God is here. These are the children of God. Remember, the church has always been a minority, a small minority in this world. And it, until the end, it will continue. Now, that is, therefore, the, uh, the point I want to make from 1 Corinthians. What about 2 Corinthians? Let's flip over there. It's, it's similar. God's power through weakness is the theme here. God's power in weakness, at least what appeared to the world was weak in chapter 1. And now here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 7 through 10, I I read it earlier. Um, There's a different thing going on here. Uh, Paul is not talking about the church as a whole. Paul is not reflecting on the church or its members. This is much more personal. Paul is reflecting on what? On his own personal experience of God's power being present in his weakness. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, it was God's power in the gospel, which seems weak. God's power in the church, which looks weak to the world. And God's power working through messengers, which seem weak to the world. And here, he's talking about himself. And uh, I won't go into much of the background. I, I think I went a little too, too long in it in the first hour. Uh, and, and Luke preached from this passage back in November. So I, I won't go f- far into it, but... M- Most of you know that what is going on in here is that Paul is having to defend the fact that he is an apostle. Why does he have to defend that he's an apostle? Because false apostles, false teachers were infiltrating the churches and going to Corinth, and they were saying, they they were announcing their great spiritual experiences and the power of God with them. And they were saying, who is this Paul? He's, he doesn't talk about his great experiences. And so they were criticizing Paul of not even being a true apostle. What stories does he have to tell? And In fact, in chapter 10, verse 10, we read this. Paul's summing up what's happening. He says, they say, meaning they say about me. Here's what they say about me, says Paul. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence (laughs) is weak and his speech of no account. This guy's not some great orator. Look at this short little guy. What is he? Where is he coming from? Who is he, you know? And what experiences has he had? Actually, Paul had had profound, personal, genuine experiences. But he didn't see that as a qualifier for his apostleship. So he never talked about it. Fourteen years earlier, uh, he had had this great experience. Somehow he was taken into the third heaven. He was given a private tour, if you would. And Paul says, I saw things I can't, it's not permitted to say. But I never talked about it. Now I'm in an awkward position. You say I'm supposed to be somebody. Well, I'll share my story. God took me to heaven. But that doesn't make me an apostle. Nor does it make me a better person or a better servant. In fact, I will boast in what resulted from this vision. And what came from the vision? He said, we read it. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul could be proud. Keep me from becoming conceited. God sent something very painful into Paul's life. He calls it what? The thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what that is. Many think it was a physical ailment. He says it's also a messenger of Satan. I think what he means by that is, you know, The devil likes to use our pain and suffering to twist our thinking and say things like, yeah, look at you. God doesn't love you. Why does he leave you like this? Why are you in such trouble, huh? You're a nobody. And and he just, he says, it was harassing me. It was painful. And he wanted it to go away. I know many of you have had painful experiences. He says, I asked the Lord three times. Take it away from me, Lord. 
That's a lot from an apostle who was whipped, stoned, left for dead. If he was suffering and he says, take it away, it must have been bad. He said, Lord, take it away from me, please. And the Lord's answer uh, came to him. And maybe this is an answer that many of you have heard before, too, from the Lord. Here it is. No. <laughs> you ever heard that answer? <laughs> no. But there was more. Look at verse 9. He said to me, and this is interesting, the tense of that verb, if you could read it in the original Greek there, it means this, he said to me and it's still ringing in my ears. He still hears it. Every day, why? Because whatever it was was hurting him, it was something he felt every day. It's like getting up in the morning and going, ah, man, ah, and realizing, no. Not today, not tomorrow. This is not going away. Don't ask. It's yours. The Lord said to me, it's still ringing in my ears, verse 9. Here's the answer. My grace is sufficient for you. For, here's the reason. Why is His grace sufficient? For my power is made perfect. That is, it's brought to its maturity. The power comes to its perfect conclusion, its, its goal in weakness, you see. That's where God's power comes to its full expression in a person's life. It's not in your strength. It's in your what? Your weakness. That that power is made perfect. And Paul says, well, I, when I learned, he says, therefore, I will actually boast now. In other words, not just grit through it. But I will boast I will boast and all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that word rest is nowhere found in the rest of the New Testament. Apparently Paul had this vision of God's glory resting upon him just like in the Old Testament, the glory that followed the people of God, it, uh, the idea of tenting, a tabernacling among us. Paul says, I know that God's power rests on me not when I think I'm strong enough but when I know that I'm weak and I'm trusting him, his power rests upon me. So when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm still weak. The pain is still there. But spiritual strength is in me now. It's magnified. And the power of God sustains me and does things through me I would have never seen done unless I was made weak. Unless God broke me, I would have never seen these blessings come out in my life and touch other people apart from my being made weak. That's what he's, he's talking about here. And see, there I go. I did it again. I told you the whole thing. <laughs> but that's the background here. You understand it? Uh, uh, now, what weaknesses is Paul talking about? Well, th the first weakness is the thorn, whatever that thorn was, some, something that was painful, but he says weaknesses, plural. Look at verse 9, when he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, plural. So he's not just talking about the thorn in the flesh. Uh, verse, verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses. So Paul is now expanding his, his application of what he's talking about. Uh, God's strength, his power is made perfect in our weakness. And I'm not only talking about this one weakness, I'm talking about weaknesses, he's saying. God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. What might they be? Well, first, I'll tell you what it is not. When he says weaknesses, he's not talking about sinful tendencies. Sometimes we speak of our sinful struggles and tendencies as a weakness, right? You know, her weakness is gossip, or his weakness is his temper, uh, you know, things like that. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about an internal weakness rooted in our sinful habits. He's talking about experiences or circumstances, that enter your life that either make you seem weak to the world or make you feel weak as well. You feel broken, you feel weak, you're debilitated. And the world looks at you and thinks, what a mess. And he lists some of them. Look down at the end of verse 10. I'm content with weaknesses, and here are four categories. 
insults. Insults. You know, people find clever ways of trying to make you feel stupid because you follow Christ. They find ways of insulting your faith, insulting you, making you look like the idiot at work or at school or with your friends. Insults. That could, that's a weakness that you might experience. Hardships is the next word that refers to circumstances that are forced upon you. You didn't plan for this, but here is a hardship, and it comes at you. Maybe it's a sudden reversal of your fortunes. You, you were going this way, you were planning for this, but whoop, God makes the opposite happen in your life. You thought you are going to live here, but now you live there. You thought you are going to make this money, and now you lost that money. <laughs> you thought you were going to be healthy, but now you're not healthy. Hardships. Persecutions, the third word, and we, we know that from First Peter. We've been studying First Peter. What's that? That's, that's abuses and prejudices, harsh treatment of you. Why? Because of your faith in Jesus. Persecution. And lastly, the last word is calamities. So if those first three words weren't hard enough, here comes the last word. Absolute calamities. Paul knew about calamities, and that word refers to profound profound troubles that feel like they're going to crush you. They feel like they're going to destroy you. Paul began this letter by saying, me and my friends were under, we were under the threat of death. We were convinced we were going to die. Calamities. Uh, some of you know all of these or, or, or some of these things. What Paul says is, these are my weaknesses. I've been in them. Some of you have been in them. He goes, but this is what I learned in them, both from God's answer, Christ's answer to me, and from my experience, that in the middle of these calamities, I can experience God's power sustaining me. And if I never was brought here, I never would have seen that power. And that's what Paul says. And notice again the verse there. Notice, please, in, in, in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's in the weakness. Not, it's, not, it's not you're weak and then comes power. It, it, it's not weakness and then grace. It's weakness and in the weakness. It isn't changing. It isn't going away. But in the weakness comes power. God's gracious Spiritual sustaining power or power to reach others through you, affect others through you, even in, in your weakness. And so you say, how does that happen? Well, naturally, we are not inclined to want to seek calamities or pressures. And naturally, we are inclined to, especially in America, pull yourselves up by own bootstraps. Man up, we say, and you try and what? Do it yourself. And so the Lord brings brokenness into our lives. He brings pain, weakness, because then is when we learn what we should know but are not inclined to do, which is what? Not trust in ourselves, but trust in him. You begin to lean upon God because you have to now. There's no choice. You have to lean upon God. You have to trust Him. And why does God do it this way in the mission? Going back again to the idea of the mission, of, 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 of evangelizing the nations and reaching the nations again. He says something very direct about that. He answers it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Earlier, Paul made this statement in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. You know it well. Many of you know this statement. Paul says, but we, and I don't think he's only talking about the apostles. I think it applies to, to all of us. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's he talking about? The treasure is what? It is the gospel. Here's a message that has the power of God to save sinners forever. Here's a message, a gospel message that has the power to transform lives and bring eternity uh, and resurrection into someone's future. This is a treasure. And where does God put that treasure? Not in the lips of angels. 
in jars of clay, muck jars, they were called. They had a lot of jars in those days. They had silver jars. They had brass. Some would have gold jars. But the clay pots, the jars of clay were reserved for throwing out the refuse. Throwing out the refuse. Paul says, God has put this powerful, life-transforming, eternity-changing message not on the lips of angels, but on frail, broken people like you and me. We're just jars of clay. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Look at the rest of the verse. To show. In other words, to demonstrate to the world. To show everyone that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see. The only reason some life is changed and someone comes to faith in Jesus and they are now a whole new person over time. The only reason that happens is because of the power of God, the treasure, because certainly it's not because of you or me. We're just jars of clay. It's not that we were so clever or we were so good or that we had so much wealth or so much power, so much influence. God builds this church through you and me because his power resides in the treasure and that treasure is placed in you and he has decided to do it this way. Why? So that no one would boast. No one may boast. Neither those who are saved for being saved nor those who are messengers can boast. Only in the Lord can we boast because salvation belongs to the Lord. And God has always done it this way, not just the gospel since the time of Jesus. God has always saved people, his people this way. He's always delivered his people this way. Think of David versus great Goliath. Here's this massive warrior, and God sends what? A little child with a sling and five stones. To do what? To make it clear salvation belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. You think of the story of Gideon. He was to defend the people of Israel and he was surrounded by 135,000 Midianites and God calls Gideon to go into battle and Gideon counts his people. He said, I've got 32,000. 32,000 against 132,000 or 135,000? And God says, yeah, that is, you, you do have too much. And you, you know, you see Gideon pacing in the room going, well, you know, this is heavenly math. I mean, what's going on? And he said, yeah, the 30, yeah that's 32 is too much. You need to reduce it. So he reduces it. He gets down to 10,000. And God says, yeah, that's still too much. You need to, we're going to get it down to what? 300. Why? Because it, 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 it was always clear forever, beloved, forever, always throughout the history of the people of God. Salvation belongs to the, to the Lord. The battle is his. Not by power, not by might, right? Not by our own strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let that be freeing to you. Let that be freeing to you. Um, the, world, the world clamors for power that it might escape weakness. But Christ in the gospel offers you power that you might endure weakness. It's different. Power to escape versus the power to endure and be used of God. And that comes from him. Weakness, your weakness, whatever it is, becomes a vehicle of grace. God's grace. To quote uh, Ray Ortland Jr., who wrote a lot on this subject, he says, our greatest breakthrough to spiritual power can come through our worst experiences. Our greatest breakthroughs, your greatest breakthrough to spiritual power in your life can come through your very worst experiences. Hmm. So what do we learn from this one now? That's the second principle. Well, let's apply it to ourselves and our mission partners. We'll start with our mission partners. Many of our mission partners have not only experienced great, great trials and personal pain, but some, some continue and permanently continue to do so and live with them. You think of Pablo and Lupita and San Quintin. 
uh, constant weakness of their ill health. They're constantly driving back and forth to Ensenada, three and a half hours for her medication, for his medication, for their treatments, and so forth. In this mission field, Pablo lost his first wife to ill health. They were surrounded by chemical spraying and things of that nature, and she died. He later married Lupita. Uh, and they've always lived in San Quentin on the very edge of poverty. And yet they have persevered serving the, the Lord there for 22 years. And that in itself is what a testimony to the power of God in weakness that he continues and he smiles and he praises God. I think of uh, the Palampos in, in, who serve in Hawaii. There's a whole different situation. Someone says, yeah, Hawaii, send me there. I'll go. <laughs> Let's, let me plant a church in Hawaii. <laughs> but it's difficult in different ways. It's really expensive there. And they, they still don't meet in their own building. They've been there many years. They, they can't afford it. They don't, they don't have that. And there's a constant ch- turnaround. Why? Because where they are, the, the majority of people there are enlisted in the Navy. So they're there three, four years, and then they go. And he disciples them, and they leave. And then the, other, the others are mostly a tourists, like you and me, who go there and one Sunday, and then they're gone. After all these years, their church is still only 30-plus people. And, and this year he lost uh, his mother, or her, yeah, his mother, and that would just crush them. Weakness, a different kind of weakness. And I think of Fernando uh, and, and Sylvia de Rochas and Bruce Moscoso and his wife Sandra, who, were, who for many years served together in, in, in Tijuana. Uh, and these people lived under the constant threat of violence of cartels. Right there at the border. It's just, it was just awful. I remember talking to Bruce one time. I went down there when they would say, it's safe to come down now. I go down. And I said, what was it like? And he says, on that night, uh, we heard the repeating, like a, a you know, AK-47, some sort of semi-automatic weapon. And we, I grabbed my wife and children, and we lay down on the floor of our house. And the bullets were rattling above where we were. And the floor of their house is Dirt. And then there's Fernando's experiences when he was there. He was kidnapped one day. He went into a computer store and came out, and a van pulled up, and they put a hood over his head and threw him in the back of a van. And they drove him to who knows where, and he was there sequestered for two days, wondering if he was going to be killed. And they were trying to use his phone contacts to extort money from North Americans. And, And instead, they drove away and just pushed him out of the van. He barely survived. When I was down visiting him in Costa Rica, we were talking about these things and he, and he remember, he said, I, I could tell you the names of eight people who I saw murdered. Or if maybe not in the act, I saw them killed there on my neighborhood. And that's just the ones that, that he knew. And, and now that they arrived in Costa Rica, he says, I don't know that I could ever go back to that neighborhood to and I have to tell you the truth. I don't think I can. And while I, on the day that I left and flew out, they got a, a phone call from Tijuana saying, as you heard Chris pray, Sylvia, your mother just died. So there they are, in weakness, broken. These are the people who we support and they, who serve God. Then there's the Arns. You remember Tony and Tawny, the church planting in Folsom. In the middle of the church plant, they lose their son to a fentanyl overdose. Just, well, that would break anybody's heart and stop them dead in their tracks, wouldn't it? But they pressed on by grace. In their weakness, they became strong. And, and then there's Craig and Lisa in the Southeast Asia. I can't mention where they are or say their last names. Why? Because out of the possibility of threats on their lives. I could go on and on and on, right? Servants of God, made weak by God, that they may see the power of God in their lives in their ministries. So I want you to remember them. We bring our mission emphasis to week, week to a close. I want to say that I know not all of you were able to be here Wednesday night when we prayed for him. I wasn't here, but I followed up on that. And Gary uh, Rickman put together a nice video, 11 minutes long, where he walks through each one of our missionaries, uh, gives a bit of their story. Three or four of them give a video presentation and prayer requests from each and every one of them. First thing I did when I got back on Saturday mornings, I watched that video and I stopped and prayed for each one of them. Don't take these people for granted. Don't just send checks. Bear their burdens with them. They are servants of God, made weak profoundly, that they might see the power of God in their ministry. 
So pray for them. You go, and f- you go to our website, and, and on the banner that rotates at the top, you'll see there the video for, for our missionaries. You click that, and you, um, and you pray for them. And personally, what I hope you'll learn for yourself again is that your greatest breakthrough to spiritual power can come through your worst experiences. Some of you maybe have been in them, or you are in them, or you're going to be. Don't be threatened by your weaknesses. Paul wasn't. He said, this is where I learned that God's power can rest on me like his glory rested on Israel. Don't be threatened by your weaknesses. Pray to God. Seek his grace. And secondly, don't see your weakness as disqualifying you. Paul says, this doesn't make me not an apostle. This doesn't mean I'm not a servant of Jesus and useless because everywhere I go, people try to kill me. I get stoned and they leave me for dead. I have to run out of some cities and I don't own my own house. I I have to ask people for support and I travel all over the world. This doesn't mean that I am not, that I'm disqualified. Don't you think that you're disqualified by your weaknesses, your frailties? God has a design to use you for his glory. I can say this with absolute conviction because of what the scriptures teaches. Here's what I can say. God has ministry in mind for every one of you that is a genuine Christian here today. He does. Absolutely. You see, how do you know that? Well, uh, why else would he place his spirit in you and give you spiritual gifts, as 1 Corinthians 12 says, which are what? Designed to minister to the body. It's like he gives you a car full with a gas tank full and he gives you the key. Don't just flip the key on the couch and walk away. Start it up. And don't think that your weakness makes you un- unavailable to serve. Don't, but you don't know me. You don't understand. Him. My struggle here, uh, there's so much pain in my life. Listen, I know there's genuine pain. But that's when power comes out. When you stand before others, you serve others, even though your life is difficult. You may need time for recovery. I understand that. Pain is debilitating. But don't stay down. Look to him. Whatever it is, is it anxiety? Is it, is it, is it stress? Is it fear? Is it discouragement? Is it sadness? Is it defeat? Learn to hand it over to the Lord and ask for his power to be perfected in you. I'm not going to pretend here that I'm, that I'm some superman because what Paul learned is that God's not looking around the world for supermen and superwomen in order to do great things. He's looking for, jay, for, for jars of clay. He's looking for clay pots who know they are a clay pot, not clay pots who think they're made of gold. (laughs) Weakness. And I'm not going to pretend that I don't suffer from this. In fact, on the way home uh, from from Costa Rica on this trip, it was so stressful, so jam-packed. I got on the plane somewhere in the flight. I'm asking myself that eternal question, How long can I keep doing this? (laughs) And the other question, Lord, is it worth it? I mean, does it it sink in when you fly in and you go, and then you fly out, you know? (laughs) Is anything happening, Lord? And that's when I got to Houston and checked my email, and Dawn had sent, sent me an email uh, she said, how sweet this person sent this. And it was uh, a, a woman who you used to be a member of our church some 13 years ago. Their family left under not so good terms with us. And she wrote 13 years later to say she wanted to thank the church. And then particularly she wanted to thank me for this class that she took with me and how she felt and how that became the foundation for where she is now spiritually. And that class was Introduction to Babel, Basic Bible Interpretation the very class I had just taught in Costa Rica that I was asking myself, does this go to anything? 13 years later on that day, I got that letter so that God would say, keep at it. 
And in that email, there was two photographs, and she sent a photo. You know what it was? It was the same assignment I gave in Costa Rica. It was her assignment, her homework turned into me and my comments on it. God, man. God, you know everything. <laughs> I'm such a jerk. <laughs> Weakness. <laughs> Weakness. Uh, so keep at it, beloved. Um, this church has been weakened the last two years. A lot happened with COVID. We've lost a lot of, of really good people. We've lost a lot of, of equipped, experienced servant leaders. And, and you know, that, that goes on. What I want you to do is not feel crushed. I want you to be brought to the place that God's brought me. That what all this means is this. This is an open door to things that God's going to do. But it might involve you. <laughs> So be praying. Huh? Let's, let's close in prayer this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the message that you have embedded in these passages. Thank you for this glorious truth that there is power to be found in weakness when we come to you. I pray, Lord, you give us, give us, Lord, a heart that is ready to lean upon you for those who lack hope, grant them hope. For those, Lord, who need greater faith, may they trust you, Lord. For those, Lord, who are struggling with pain that is not going away, hurt that is not going to change, I pray that you would draw near to them and comfort them, Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen.